0: This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoffcom donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. It's our eighth anniversary, and in this edition we celebrate by featuring five stories by our hardworking editors. Sobriquet by Justin Harkin. A Very Nice Visit by Ashley Cowger, Waiting on Dolores by Marcella Fuentes. Lacey's Toes by KJ Hannah Greenberg and Moving the World by Adrian Doris Sobriquet written by Justin Harkin read by Lindsay Hunter Listening time 1 minute 3 seconds
1: my husband Jerry calls me eats, also cow and piggy, cunt flaps when he's angry. He says Jen in front of Daddy, I'll give him that, and for show he tosses in some sugar pies and babies. Affection makes Daddy blush something Jerry knows. The man has a gift for names and naming, knows their power, makes you weak. Daddy made him foreman for it even. Jerry's a painter, and on his job sites, nicknames abound. Says it keeps the crew in line, I don't know. I keep Daddy's books, and the boys never sass me when I call them by their propers. For Jerry, though, it's different. He'll find a man's hateful and fire away. Pipehead, garnished, stank. If Jerry had to name himself, he'd go with Jerry's kid or cripple. Dredge up that way back dipshit accident. The one where the table saw took his thumb and pointer. Thing also ate the middle and part of the ring, but those the doctors reattached. Sewn on, they're thick like dynamite. Can't bend them. Unusable. Wedding bands on a necklace now. Jerry turns 30 this fall and has hair as white as primer. He's gentle when scared or wounded. He'll tell me, baby, 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 when those phantom fingers pain him. But when he asks so nice for kisses, I do name it of my own. Christen him Pecker Hand. Ghost Man. Cannot be loved.
0: A very nice visit. Written and read by Ashley Cowger. Listening time: two minutes twenty-five seconds.
2: At first, we are able to talk about something—people we grew up with, our respective lives, how long it's been since we've seen each other, and what we've been doing in the meantime. We talk too about your flight, your layover in Chicago, and whether they served an on-flight meal. We smile and nod and say how good it is just to be together. And we mean it, we really mean it, at first. Then we begin to run out of things to say. Lags in the conversation must be filled with inane chatter that interests neither of us, though we both pretend. We talk about nothing for a while. The weather, a TV show one or the other of us hasn't seen, a new diet, what type of coffee you buy these days, how often I change the air freshener in my bathroom. Finally, one of us yawns, and the other yawns too, and we agree that we are tired. We tuck ourselves away in our respective rooms, but stay up a little longer, reading or watching TV, or just feeling the relief of not having to come up with something to say. The next day we do things, as many things as we can, try to fill the empty space growing more and more obvious between us. We go to lunch, then to the movies, then shopping, then dinner, then bowling. We both wonder, if we're doing all of this today, what will we do tomorrow and the next day before you go? We're not pacing ourselves, we're cramming it all in, and still we talk about nothing as often as not, your dog back home and whether he misses you, my job and whether or not I'll get the raise I feel entitled to but can't seem to get up the courage to ask for. The next day, we both stay in our rooms very late, hoping the other will assume we're sleeping in, though neither one of us actually is. When we do force ourselves into the living room, we talk about nothing, then something, then nothing, and on and on for the rest of the day. The stretches of nothing are getting longer and more tedious, and our minds are both noticeably wandering. We're both thinking how strange it is that we have known each other our entire lives, and yet we don't really know each other at all. The next day goes the same as the day before, except that at the end of the day, you go home. We hug and say goodbye, and both agree what a very nice visit it was. Talk about nothing, just a little longer. Talk about how good it is to keep in touch with family.
0: Waiting on Dolores. Written and read by Marcella Fuentes. Listening time, 6 minutes, 58 seconds.
3: Tonight, Jolie's wife Dolores is two-stepping with her cowboy out at Doc Holliday's bar. She's a regular honky-tonk angel and never mind the crow's feet. She's showing off her pretty gals in a red tube top. And those jeans are cinched tight with a silver concho belt that winks under the neon course sign. Her cowboy keeps a gentle hand on the small of her back. Jolie doesn't get mad, but seeing it makes him order a couple more shots of wild turkey. After this, he thinks, he'll head over to the Noah Noah bar or the B-29 or the Palomino Lounge, some place where the women have short, ugly hair and they don't dance with anybody. You gonna sign this check for me, baby? Joe Lee asks when the cowboy brings Dolores over to the bar. You better sign it, D, says Ralph, the bartender. Otherwise, I gotta take him outside and beat the dog shit out of him. He owes me fifty dollars. Dolores presses a bottle of Bud Light to her cheek. She's sweated off her eye makeup, and her breath is coming hard. But it's only her hands that are starting to look old. The one gripping the bottle looks like a bird claw with nail polish on it. God damn it! Crystal sent you that check for your rent. Well, I wouldn't be in here spending money if you'd have signed it earlier. Jolie's been waiting on Dolores since this morning. She works at the Kinney County Library as a cataloger, has since the second year they were married. She spends her day barricaded by books, empty shipping boxes, and stacks of labeling sheets. Dolores knows the library collection by heart. It's the same with every bad thing Jolie has ever done. Ralphie, you ain't helping, Dolores tells the bartender, plucking a bunch of maraschino cherries out of a tray that also has lime slices and tiny plastic swords. She sets a cherry between her back teeth, yanks the stem... "'Choose. Quit serving him. Thirty's from last week,' says Ralph. "'He said he was going to pay me tonight. "'Showed me the check. "'What are you, the bank and trust?' "'I can cash it, yeah, long as you sign.' "'Don't you do it, Dee,' says the cowboy. "'That old boy yours will dump it all right here.' "'Shut up, Kyle,' Jolie says. "'The cowboy looks like a Kyle "'with that chapped, sunburned face.' and the crimpy yellow mustache. It's Wes. Excuse me then, got my days mixed up. Ah, hell, says the cowboy, and slams a flat open palm into Jolie's chest. Jolie tumbles off his barstool and knocks his head right on the threshold of the dance floor. Go on and kick his ass, Ralphie, Dolores says. If he's going to tell his daughter he's short on the rent this month and then spend it in here, he needs it. Her legs scissor and flash. One boot heel clacks right next to his ear, and then she's gone. He loses her in the swirl of dancers. Ralphie the bartender is all talk, though, or he's still hoping, because he just throws Jolie out and tells him he can't come back until he pays up. Dolores lives down the street from the Palomino Lounge in an old two-story brick tenement. Jolie passes it, red-eyed drunk, walking home from the P.L., Music, soft and meandering, filters down from her second-floor apartment. She likes to leave the window open at night, always has. He stares into the dark space between the white curtains, swaying, listening, recognizing the song. It's Lori Lewis, buoyed by banjos, singing about an oak and a laurel. That voice is clear as water, the clearest thing in a whole lot of slurry nights. He shuts his eyes to hear it, really hear it, and stumbles into the garbage cans in front of the building. It makes a hell of a noise, and Jolie thumps his head a good one, again, on the curb. The music cuts off. He lies there blinking, and Dolores sticks her head out the window. Her loose black hair falls over the sill, shiny as the vinyl grooves on a record. You look just like a princess, Dee. If your hair was longer, I could climb up to you. You should grow it. Go home. Can you sign this check or what? His head is too heavy to pick off the pavement. But the check is easy to think about. It's been burning a hole in his shirt pocket all day and night. Quit drinking and get a bank account like a real human being. I'm broke, he hollers. I can't go anywhere. I'll probably get robbed laying here all night. If I do it, will you leave? Yeah. He doesn't know if this is true, and she seems to sense that. But she ducks back into her bedroom. A few minutes later, the cowboy comes downstairs, bare-chested. Dolores is behind him. "'How much is left?' she asks. Jolie doesn't remember, but he won't say so. He can't say so. This close to her, he can't say anything. "'That is your daughter's money. You hear that? She's the one you're robbing.' "'Give me the check.' The cowboy tells him. You mind your business, Jolie says. I'm talking to my wife. The cowboy sighs. He sticks two big fingers into Jolie's shirt pocket and pulls out the folded green check. He gives it to Dolores, who signs it on the cowboy's sturdy back. She drops it onto Jolie's chest. You got what you came for, Dolores says. Now clear on out of here. She leaves, no hesitation, no goodbye. Buddy, says the cowboy, prodding him with a bare toe. Ain't you even going to sit up? Joe Lee glares at the cowboy, who's been touching Dolores with those blunt, sunburned fingers. His head feels like an anvil, but his hands are light and willful. He locks eyes with the cowboy and begins, slowly, to tear the check into narrow, curling strips. The cowboy shakes his head and goes inside. A breeze lifts Jolie's hair off the pavement, sends the paper curls into the street. And the stereo starts back up. And there's that voice again, sweet and clear as water. But cold, too. Cold.
0: Lacey's Toe Written by K.J. Hannah Greenberg Read by Kelly Shriver Listing time 7 minutes 30 seconds.
4: Had she not overreached when chasing that large brown spider off of Molly's porch, Lacey would not have had to get her front right leg set in a cast at Doc Weatherby's. Her lone broken toe, which suffered a simple fracture, required that she endure much indignation. First, Molly tied her snout closed with Gerald's blue polka dotted tie all the while muttering something that sounded like, finally a good use for this thing. Molly then gently lifted Lacey into Molly's favorite yarn basket. Before transport, she had dumped the skeins out and had placed a soft bath towel inside. After Molly slid into the family car's back seat, she gently lifted Lacey, basket and all, in next to her. Molly secured both while barking rough words at Gerald, along the lines of, "'Not with my baby,' and like you're on fire. Gerald drove faster than he did normally. En route, a policeman made Gerald stop. He looked in through the window Gerald had rolled down, heard Molly sobbing, noticed the contents of Molly's basket, patted Gerald on the back, and escorted Lacey and her companions all the way to Doc Weatherby's. In the parking lot, the officer could not stop laughing and shaking his head. Molly almost tripped over the teacup poodle that was letting loose with its bowels on Doc Weatherby's waiting room floor. Exhaling fortissimo, she sat down next to a twenty-something, holding a potpourri cat that was sniffing the hamster in the cage on the next chair. When the hamster's owner returned, the cat's keeper mentioned something about not having had time to give her pet lunch. Meanwhile, Gerald made haste to the admissions desk. He used phrases like broken paw, "'Empty Nest Syndrome, Yorkshire Terrier, and Divorce. "'The clerk looked up at him, shrugged, "'pulled her chewing gum out of her mouth in a long sticky strand, "'reinserted her gum, and typed on her keyboard "'until she found Lacey's file. "'Gerald was a new face. "'Molly usually took their precious to the vet by herself. "'The span that Lacey's family waited "'was long enough for Molly to dab at her eyes "'with an entire roll of toilet paper.' which Gerald had commandeered from the staff bathroom, but brief enough for Gerald to read only the introduction on his smartphone to a short story downloaded from his favorite speculative fiction e-zine. Lacey Bourne, a veterinary assistant who was holding a clipboard, called for the entire minute and a half that it took her to move herself and Lacey from their seat in the waiting area to a table in an examination room mild-mannered Molly remained transformed into a hybrid of linebacker and hulk. It was a stupendous, a miracle, if truth be told, that the veterinary assistant survived the onslaught. Furthermore, the incident ought to have been televised during the winter holiday season to help sell old-fashioned greeting cards. So pure was Molly's love for her little furry one. For his part, Gerald turned his head toward the floor and apologized to the veterinary assistant's feet. Slowly he followed the monster he had married and her young. Doc Weatherby, who walked into the increasingly shrinking space minutes later, smelled like basil, cardamom, juniper, tonka bean, and leather, as well as like feces and blood. The latter was occupational. The former attested to his love of Burberry Brit rhythm. When he opened his mouth to reassure Molly— that all would be set right, figuratively and literally, he also smelled like yellowtail wine. He had brought home souvenirs from the most recent North American Veterinary Community Conference. Lacey whimpered pain and the frustration of confinement. Donning safety gloves, the doctor lifted her out of Molly's yarn basket. He then dispassionately passed the dog to his bare-handed assistant. The assistant, also a gum-chewer, blew a bubble before injecting a phenothiazine tranquilizer, into Lacey and taking her for an x-ray. Thereafter, Doc Weatherby applied a four-layer splint to Lacey's foot. She was wrapped, respectively, with a cotton stocking, some unidentifiable soft material, a fiberglass sheath, and an elastic bandage. As a bonus, Doc fitted a fabric version of an Elizabethan collar around Lacey's throat. The admissions clerk stitched them by hand most evenings while catching up on her DVR recorded soap operas. She gave Doc a discount on every gross that he purchased. Gerald carried the limp, splinted, protective medical device adorned ratcatcher in his arms and then into the car. He removed his cardigan and gently puddled that sweater around his surrogate child. Molly, who had been given a tab of azoplacone from Doc Weatherby's personal stash, paid the bill, wiped at her eyes with the sleeve of her blouse, and, exhaling purposefully, walked around the clay pot full of baby boas that a young man with many facial piercings and ombre-colored hair had just brought in. Whereas Lacey had wanted no part of the bags of frozen peas or green beans that Molly attempted to place against her injury to regulate her swelling— And, whereas she had chewed off all of the plastic wrappers from days' worth of delivered newspapers, with which Gerald had tried covering her paw to keep her cast moisture-free, somehow she and her guardians had arrived at the far end of the eight weeks that Doc Weatherby had prescribed for her healing. In fact, Lacey's cast sported fewer cracks, breaks, tears, and soft spots than had most of the casts of similarly incapacitated feisty dogs— that frequented the veterinary clinic. Doc Weatherby allowed himself to be silently impressed. When that champion of budgies gone bad, guardian of house cats with acute appendicitis, defender of puppies with ringworm, examined the Bourne's cherished other, he smiled. Nodding to yet one more of his assistants, the man indicated that their dear pet was ready for the electrical saw. One quick dose of sedatives later, Lacey's appendage was emancipated. It was a pity that no one had thought to also anesthetize Molly. A second member of staff waved smelling salts under the woman's nose. Molly hadn't been able to believe, in the deepest of ways, that a machine with a vibration strong enough to break apart fiberglass wouldn't harm her Lacey. Gerald, for his part, just muttered more apologies to the sets of feet around him and his collapsed wife. Two weeks later, he was back at Doc Weatherby’s, preferring additional requests for forgiveness. Intrepid Lacey, who had spotted the season's first Eastern tiger swallowtail, had again fallen off of their porch. The end
0: Moving the World, written and read by Adrian Doris, listing time 17 minutes, 45 seconds.
5: Of all the things to hate about being old, this topped the list. Okay, LT, the nurse said. Buzz me when you're done. She rolled the hoist out of the bathroom and closed the door on him. It was awful, humiliating, unfair. Slung in that contraption, pulled from his chair, and dropped to the cold porcelain like a thing to be flushed. They shouldn't allow it. A man should get to die before it comes to this. LT took a look around him the rose-print wallpaper, the mauve floor tiles, his trousers puddled around his feet. The alternative? He saw the pitiful race with the colostomy bags, toting their messes around like picnic lunches, and the bedridden with bones so brittle they would snap if Nurse Emily or Christy or whatever her name was tried to move them in that rig. They would give anything to be in his place to go in a real toilet again. L.T. grimaced to himself, feeling good and superior for a second. He couldn't walk. His legs had long ago withered into pale sticks, but he could still do this. Sit upright, purge on his own, and answer affirmatively the only question ever put to him. Bow movement today, Mr. Harris? Jesus. His father always said you can't polish a cow pie, and L.T. knew he was buffing the hell out of this one. His father is another sign another sign of the approaching finale when a man's father starts coming to him. It was his voice, mostly, scattered words and fragmented exhortations. But a few nights back, L.T. woke to find him, a young and vital version, the man from the field, in dirty jeans and strapped shirt, sitting on the edge of his bed, staring at those mob tiles. As L.T. tried to speak, his father disappeared, leaving the mocking beep of some infernal apparatus in his stead. What would he think now? Samuel Harris had died as a real man, a worker, turning up land and making it better. He died with his hand on a tractor steering wheel, with sweat coursing his face, and a half-dozen creased and faded photos of his children in his wallet. Not like his son, a hopeless vegetable getting giddy over a crap. Samuel Harris would say a man who couldn't even wipe himself wasn't much of a man at all. He would say, pack it up and die clean. But Samuel Harris wasn't like ordinary men. He had the big stick, that's what he called it, made him strong inside and out. And his son, Lewis Taylor L.T. Harris, was supposed to have it too. His own father, the man himself, had said so. Ah, it all to hell. The field darkens, and he and his brother keep watch on both the gathering storm and their father as he digs furiously at a corner post hole, a storm unto himself. None wants to be the first to say anything, so they let him keep at it, but it's obvious that the hole will be much too deep for the post. "'Give your pops a hand,' their father says, climbing out of the dirt." The post, a massive oak log as tall as a horse and wide as a pig, is on the trailer. Otis and Cyrus, both at the age where their father expects them to work as hard as he, go to it and on a three count slide it to the ground. Now roll it over here, their father says. A grumble of thunder ripples across the land. Come on, before it starts to rain. The boys obey, kicking pushing and cajoling the post toward their father. They situate one end near the lip of the opening. Now, their father says, pointing with a grimed and calloused hand, let's all three get on that end. Lift it up and drop it in. L.T. watches as his two brothers and his dad strain and grunt to get the thing off the ground. They heave it high into the air and then let go. Like a colossal nail, it fills the hole with an airy wallop all but two feet of its length consumed. Damn, their father says. Well, damn. Cyrus struggles to suppress his laughter, moisture shimmering in the creases of his eyes. Otis is turning red, but laughing at their father, especially right then, would mean a serious and painful whipping, and not to mention more work on top of all the irregular chores and the irregular demands. Cyrus and Otis manage, feigned surprise and concern. A cold wind kicks up a cloud of dust and rustles the hedgerow. The rain comes suddenly in heavy, gravid drops. Samuel Harris turns to his three boys. Cy, Otis, I need you two to get up to the house and get the sheep inside. Lewis, you stay here with me. LT is struck. He's never worked with his father alone, For that matter, he's never been alone with his father, ever, in his whole short life. And the prospect fills him with equal measures of excitement and dread. "'Yes, sir,' he says. Cyrus and Otis jump in the wagon. Cy snaps the reins and they take off toward the house and the barn. LT turns to his father, who is standing close to him now. "'Son,' he says, bending forward to look LT directly in the eye. "'We've got to get this post—' out before the hole fills with mud and makes it damn near impossible to he pauses, searches for the word to extract but I can't lift you're not going to lift nothing the rain falls harder and Rivulet's course his father's wide tanned face and neither am I then how? give me a lever long enough and I can move the world somebody said that a long time ago LT glances around him. Save for the shovel and the post, there's nothing but a sprawling field in the dark, towering sky. "'It's in my mind, son,' his father says, raising a grimy finger to his temple. "'I got a big stick in my mind. I can see it just as plain as I can see you. A big, thick stick, made of wood, but stronger than iron. Stronger than anything in the entire universe. "'Can you see it, son?' L.T. nods timidly, but his young mind cannot know the significance of that faint signal of assent. It is a lie. He'll understand this later, when it is too late. But he does not know he is telling it. And what, really, is his father asking? "'Yes, Papa,' he hears himself say. "'I can see it.' "'I knew you could. "'I could always tell you were like me. "'I've seen you do things with yours.' "'You have?' Yes, Lewis, I've seen you use yours. When you were a little one, before you knew things, when you just felt them. As if to punctuate him, a clap of thunder creases the sky. Now watch. His father strides to the post and squats before it, placing his hands on the opposite sides of the log, as if he's going to squeeze it into pulp. LT watches his face. Beneath the sheen of rainwater, it is limp, and pale and his eyes are closed as if he's just drifted off to sleep. He remains like this for several seconds, and then without fanfare or effort he moves, or rather, it, the log moves. Forty years later when he watches the first Apollo rocket lurch away from the earth and toward a cold gray moon, LT won't think not of outer space or human ingenuity or the pursuit of truth, but of that corner post rising out of the broken ground in the same sure and persistent manner. His father doesn't so much as lift the massive log, but guides it like a dancer leading a stiff, rotund partner. Only when he lets go, and it goes crashing to the ground, does it appear to have any weight at all. There, his father says, wiping the rain off his face, tendrils of steam curl and twist away from his forehead "how did you do that" lt says "i told you louis i told you" he taps his temple again and then reaching across a distance that seems both uncomfortably vast and uncomfortably close his father taps his son's temple too lt gasps "the fingertip is hot" Sometimes, a revelation is a kind of robbery. Knowledge does not always beget a net gain. Whatever LT could do as an infant or a toddler, or whatever his father believed he had done, the man never mentioned the big stick again, and then died before LT might have ginned up the courage to bring it up himself. His own big stick can never be found. He searched every recess of his mind, day in, day out, throughout a childhood and adolescence that saw him kicked out of schools, thrown into juvenile homes, and that ended ultimately with his enlistment in the Navy. Only there with bigger heads to do the thinking for him could he quit thinking himself, relieved at last of the duty to find a thing his father claimed should be his, yet some vision of this big stick dogged him in spare moments and troubling dreams, a mocking avatar of a wizard's magic staff, straight but natural, made of oak or mahogany or madrone, suspended in space like a divine relic, glowing, emanating, mystifying, the tinkling, puerile stuff of fairy tales. And the futility of the search, and by extension his squandering of God-given potential, was never more pronounced than that day when a Japanese Zero, after its last bomb fell short of the aircraft carrier, winged back around and the pilot aimed it at the ship. LT was on the flight deck, frantically semaphoring another Corsair into the sky when the plane hit. The force was enough to throw him hard against his blast shield and drive shards of metal into the backs of his legs. When he looked up, there was a slow, churning sense of cacophony, but it all unfolded in mute cinematography. Fire leapt from the ruptured deck, a column of smoke rippling with whorls and involutions made for the sky, while the snapped communications tower pointed prophetically down, down, down. But, despite his deafness and the pain now radiating through his thighs and buttocks, he felt momentarily lucky. He could still see, Thanks to the signalman's goggles, he wore against the incessant batter of prop wash. And through a haze of smoke, he found Reynolds, one of the other signalmen, prone and writhing near the great gash in the flight deck. His face bloodied, his helmet and goggles apparently ripped away by the blast. His eyes were pegged in shock, and he had a hand stretched towards LT. A series of tremors moved through LT's own body haptic messages transmitted from below, where internal structures were collapsing, where water was replacing air, and where men were already dying. He managed to rise on his uninjured leg and then limped to Reynolds' place. The man's left leg was gone, detached and disappeared from his upper thigh. The meat of his shredded muscles spasmed round a ragged protrusion of broken femur. Blood flowed, pooled darkly on the flight deck. Reynolds did not move, and only by the breast that he snatched in rapid succession did LT know he was still alive. He cinched his belt around Reynolds' thigh and began to say things to the man that even he himself could not hear. It will be okay. You're going to be okay. I'll help you. We need to get out of here. He threaded one arm under Reynolds' neck and the un- and the other under the small of his back as if he were about to carry him off to bed like an infant. Reynolds was not a small man. He was tall and muscled, and LT could only stand on one leg. The distance they needed to clear from here to the ship's edge was no more than 15 yards, but to LT it might as well have been a mile. He grabbed Reynolds by the outstretched arm and tried to drag him, but his injured leg buckled and he fell. Another profound shudder moved through the ruined hall, and l t realized he could faintly hear a few things- the high complaint of stressed metal, the low whoosh of swirling water, and above them all screams, dozens of terrible and interwoven screams as he lay there, his hands still wrapped around his friend's forearm, the energy draining out of him, he became aware of an afterward teetering, and that his legs were slowly ascending, and his head was slowly descending as if he were as if he were methodically poured down a drain which in fact he was he could see the bow settling into a lazy but certain upward arc and he realized there was no more time the time was over he grabbed Reynolds under both armpits and tried to push them both toward the water with his one functional leg but his boot kept slipping in the smear of fresh blood they'd gone nowhere the ship was sinking and they were still on it He closed his eyes, let his face go limp, relaxed his grip on Reynolds, and waited for it to come. And it didn't, just as it never had. A tremendous wail reverberated through the hall, followed by the gnashing and crunching of breaking steel. LT let go of Reynolds, aimed himself at the water, and scrabbled towards it, pitching himself into a cauldron of froth and chaos, just as the ship his ship snapped in two and sunk. A man with a big stick wouldn't need a nurse to help him shit. He wouldn't let a pair of withered legs stop him. A man with a big stick would lever his crippled ass off the pot and just walk out of here. LT heard his father's voice again, and although he was tired and old and ready to die, LT couldn't help but snap to attention. He still wanted to believe Maybe if he'd just stayed on the hunt, dogged and tireless. The bathroom walls reverberated with that voice as though Samuel Harris, and not some surly nurse, was on the other side of the doorway, beckoning them to stand. Move the world, the voice said. You gotta move the world, LT. That was it. With a lever long enough. Samuel Harris didn't move that corner post, no. With his big stick, his lever, he had moved the world around it. And now LT understood that a big stick was less about moving and more about remaining still, and that the world, the terrestrial, the metaphysical, what did it matter now, is what should should be moved. So his father had simply held that oak log in place while his big stick moved everything else. And the result was a sense of motion, like that feeling you get inside an automatic car wash. But could that possibly be? Were senility and desperation finally taking their collective toll, driving him to final hour explanations that were as ridiculous as they were convenient? But L.T. knew he was right. He knew because for the first time in his life, he saw it. It loomed above the great expanse of his consciousness, like a stolid but benevolent god offering itself to him. In return, he took hold of it, the wood smooth and cool in his hand, the circumference made for his grip. A wave of joy washed over him, and he blinked a tear into the craggy topography of his cheek. At last, he'd found it. At last, he was getting out of here. The big stick did did exactly what it was supposed to do. It moved everything back and away from LT, taking the toilet, the bathroom, and the VA facility with it carrying away the entire world like a balloon untethered. For LT, it felt like he was going up and up and up. But he knew better. The world was moving, not him. He kept a calm but firm grip on his stick, looked up into space, and looked anxiously for his father. LT couldn't wait to show him what he'd found.
0: Listener supported Boundoff is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Boundoff, copyright Boundoff and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.